So please turn with me to Luke chapter 15. We're going to read the prodigal son. We're going to look at verses 11 to 32. 11 to 32. Let me read it so you can get re-familiarized with this very, very well-known parable. Verse 11 reads, And he said, and this is Jesus, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country. And he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into the fields to feed what? The swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come back to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was unwilling to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, And have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat. So that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came. Who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes. You killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him. Son, you have always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. This is a very well-known parable. This is the parable of the prodigal son. Today we're going to dig a little bit deeper. And my purpose today is for you to see God's grace through this parable. I also want to say that I know some of you have been hurt by your earthly fathers. I pray that this, that this parable 
sets your eyes on the best father in the universe, and that is God the Father in heaven. That's going to be the focus today. I want to start off today with, uh, with a story. It's a true story. A long time ago, I used to do children, uh, high school ministry with young adults. And I dealt with ages from 13 to 21. And one day, a 16-year-old came and spoke to me and said, I have a problem. I have a very serious, serious problem. I said, okay, what's the problem? He said, I need to talk to you. Okay, let's talk. He said, I need to pass my driver's ed. My, I, I want to get my driver's license. And he had taken it a few times and he had failed. And I said, well, okay, we can look into that. We can take some time. And he said, no, you don't understand. I have to pass it in my car. At the time, I was driving a 20-year-old Pontiac Bonville. Um, they don't make that car anymore. No one wants to refurbish it. That's, that's a good thing. Um, you see, the father was more than willing to buy the son a nice luxury, big SUV. But the father wasn't willing to take the time to teach him how to drive a car. You see, the father was more than willing to ask his secretary to write out a check. But the father sort of dismissed what was really important, taking the time to spend teaching your son something so valuable as driving your car, driving a car. Proverbs 22, 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart. In my assessment, that father failed at something so important. He failed. And we need to really take a step back and see in this parable a father who didn't fail, a father who was praying for his son, a father who was so gracious to, us, to both his sons. I cannot stress this enough. The presence of a father is so important in the household. When there's a father in the household, there's structure. There's, 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 the children can't do anything they want. There's discipline. But when there's no father, sort of things fall through the cracks. Here we see that this father taught his both sons through his words but also through his actions. How graciously to, to be able to uplift your sons, to be patient with them, even when wronged. This is a narrative portion of Scripture, and it's very easy to follow. This week, two weeks ago, I went to the dentist, and they said it was going to be quick, it wasn't going to be painful. It was, it was long, and it was painful. I hope today it's going to be very, very quick. We're going to go fast because we have so much to do. To help speed everything up, I'm going to explain to you off the bat. I want to set sort of the, the tent pegs. I want to set the structure. I'm going to explain to you who these three main characters are. The father here represents God. Very, very clear. This is the gracious God. This is the king of glory, the sovereign sustainer. This is the ultimate satisfier. The prodigal son represents the sinner hitting rock bottom and turning to Jesus. The older son here, and this is where this is it's important, the older son represents the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, Jesus is the one rebuking the legalism of the Pharisees. Because in the beginning of chapter 15, 
they were grumbling against Jesus. Let me prove this to you. In chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, it reads, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him, that's Jesus, to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And verse 3 sets the stage. So Jesus told them this parable. I want you to have this in mind. I want to show you today that this parable is not just about the prodigal son who comes to his senses. It's not about the older son who's irate and angry against his younger brother. This is all about the father's grace and how he so consistently deals with both of his sons even when he is wronged. So the title of this sermon is God's Gracious Grace to Sinners. We're going to look at, or the outline of the roadmap today, very, very easy. We're going to we're look at rejection, repentance, and reconciliation. Rejection, repentance, and reconciliation. We're going to look at the sinner's rejection of the Father's grace, the sinner's repentance because of the Father's grace, and then we're going to see reconciliation through the Father's grace. So let's start with verse 11. And he said, this is Jesus, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, listen to the disrespect. Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. This is not a nice request. This is not something polite. This was a demand, an immediate demand right now for his future inheritance. And this would put into peril the entire family estate because estate doesn't just mean house or a home. There's land, there's workers, there's, there's future crops. We know, that, we know that if the son would have stayed, then it would have multiplied the estate. Assuredly, the land had animals, and animals helped with transportation and with food. So it's more than just money. It's what you need to stay alive. Listen, if the young man would have understood the responsibility and the roles of what he had to do, if he would have stayed, the whole family would have been better off. But he's being selfish, and he demands it. But there's more. Do you know what the son is really saying? The son is basically saying, I hate you. Let's stop this charade. I wish you were dead. Let's get on with it. Just give me what is yours, what is mine from what is yours, and let me be off. That's what the son is really saying. Why? Because he hates his father. Because if he loved his father, he would never do this to him or to his family. So now the father is forced to make a decision. What do I do? Do I take inventory and do I separate and divide everything? Or does he say no? The father decides to grant his son this request. And what happens after that? Well, basically everything happens after that. Because in verse 13 we read, And how many days later the younger son gathered everything together. He set everything in order and went off on a journey into a distant country. 
Notice this is post-haste. He basically spoke with his father on Monday and Thursday he's gone. The context is also clear. Where did he go? He went off to a far-off Gentile country. He's running away from God. He's running away from the presence of Yahweh. He's running away from accountability, from responsibility, from his work. He's running away from his father. And since this this is a parable, we also come to understand that this is a sinner running away from God. This is a sinner running away from the grace of God. And that's what sinners always do. Sinners always reject God's grace. And we were all like that, were we not? So before we judge too quickly on this prodigal son, we also have to take a moment and say, maybe that was us. Or maybe that is currently us. Because before we were saved, but when we were unbelievers, we loved our sin more than we loved the Savior. We considered heaven our right, and we thought we were good enough to enter into God's presence. And Jesus further explains the real intention of the son in verse 13. Because the son, the younger son, had a plan. Verse 13 reads, And there, in the far-off Gentile land, he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, I'm not going to explain this on a Sunday morning. I'm pretty sure you can figure it out. But instead of using wisely what he had, instead of investing the money that was his, and instead of leaving an inheritance to his children and to his grandchildren, he spent it, he squandered it. The word squandered it has the sense of he just threw everything away. He also did not hold the teaching of his father to his heart. What was the draw? He wanted to live recklessly. I want you to understand this is what a sinner does or an unbeliever does when a lustful heart goes unchecked. The prodigal son set his eyes on the world and nothing could stop him. He wanted all that it could offer and he was convinced that everything his father tried to teach him was utterly and completely foolishness and rock. Please, Cornerstone, don't let the pull of this world, do not let success, money, do not let promotions or good grades define you. Let your relationship with Christ define you. Follow God, because as we're going to see, there are consequences to sin. Sin always has consequences. You never hear about the consequences before you commit sin. But I promise you, and we're going to see, there's always lies. The lies of sin always come out. And there's more. Verse 14 reads, Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. This is a man who basically was walking with a pouch of money, around his neck, because that's what, they didn't have wallets. They would have a pouch, and they would put the money, and then the money would be tucked inside their shirts. That's how he's walking into every single place and venue, and now all of that is gone. And what follows here is a sovereign work of God. This is God sovereignly setting into motion things that would help prevent this 
unbeliever from continuing to go deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. That's an act of God. Because there's an emphasis here. It's not just a famine. It's a severe famine. This is worse than an economic total collapse of a country because there's no food. People work for food, and now there's nothing, and no one can find anything. And he's poor. Scripture says he's impoverished. That means he's the lowest of the lows in a foreign Gentile country. I want to remind you here that God uses trials and tribulations in the lives of unbelievers to draw to himself through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And in this case, he is drawing this prodigal son to himself through a severe famine. As Christians, we can see that we have a promise from God that we are unshakable or we are the chain of salvation is so unbreakable that we will always be with him. And everything that happens to us Christians, and this is seen in Romans 8.28, and we know that God uses some things, all things, to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. As a Christian, we can take rest and respite knowing that nothing happens outside of God's prescription or permission. This is where we rest, and we take comfort in that. And we contrast that with what this prodigal son is doing. Because you see, there's a sad response. He is still persisting in his sin. He didn't say, I wash my hands, I'm humbled, I'm going to go back. He thinks he's going to go get a job and he's going to be able to weather out this storm. Maybe he can go find something, the famine's going to get better, and then he can go back to his reckless life. But God doesn't permit him. This is a total depravity of the human heart. Listen to me. Our sinful hearts are never satisfied with sin. Our hearts are only satisfied when we have the Savior. Because sin leads to more and more. More and more is always needed. And the sinner left to himself will never run to God. But will do everything humanly possible to run to his favorite sin. But God in his grace and his mercy was not finished humbling this young man. Let's go back to verse 15. What does he do? He goes and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. This is a Gentile country. And that that person sent him into the fields to feed, of all things, swine. Don't forget, this is a good Jewish, well, not a good, but this is a Jewish man, young Jewish man. This would be unheard of. This would be unclean. This would be unimaginable. This is the worst and worst possible job he can ever find. This was forbidden. But that's what he does. And that's what sin does. 1 John 2.16 reads, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. You see, he got up, he got caught up with the things of the world. And that is how we were all before the cross. We were all in rebellion against God and His grace. 
in the same way that this prodigal son was in rejection. He rejected his father's love. We too rejected God's grace. Because now listen, in the diaspora or the diaspora, that was something I was hesitating to say. Because one commentator wrote, the Jews had a well-organized system of almsgiving outside of Israel, precisely for such a situation. If he would have wanted, he could have just asked. And instead of, he would have been able to ask one of those Jewish systems for help. But he is persisting to reject Yahweh and all the traditions of his father. Instead of casting himself on the mercy of a close Jewish community, the younger son joins a Gentile. But God's grace is so much stronger. God's grace is everlasting. Because we saw the rejection, and now we're going to see repentance. We're going to see that God's sovereign grace in the life of this young son is changing him, is molding him. Let me read verses 17 to 19. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up. And came to his father. What does this mean? He came to his senses. You see, the adrenaline rush of sin has faded away. And now all he has left is just the consequences of his actions. Did you see what happened in the second part of verse 15? He is reminded of his father's grace. How his father loved him, how his father took care of his children, and how well his father still was respectful. To his servants, the same young man that wanted his father dead and ran away with his inheritance now has come to his senses and decided to go back and to beg for his father, for father's forgiveness. You see, this is where we see the heart melting by God's grace. This is where you see his attitude shifting. This is where we see a beautiful example of the doctrine of repentance. Repentance, there's two words for repentance. There's metanoia, and then there's epistrefo. Metanoia is a change of the mind, and epistrefo is a change of behavior. In our Bibles, we have a change or repentance, and then you have a turning away. That's what our Bibles have. Let me prove it to you. If you turn with me to Acts chapter 13, verse 19. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. This is Peter using both of these words. Verse 19 reads, Therefore repent, that's metanoia, and return, epistrefo, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. There is no, as our pastor Harry Wall says, there is no damage control. It's a complete change of will. Paul uses both of these words in Acts chapter 26, verse 20. I'll read it to you. 
that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. True repentance is both a change of the mind and a change of behavior. It's not shame or remorse for being caught. And only God is the one who can afford or give you true repentance. It's a purposeful decision to forsake sin and to follow the Savior. It's a 180-degree turn as you were going there. As you loved that sin, now you love the Savior. That's the whole concept. This is the awakening we see in this prodigal son, in this younger son. So what does he do? He gets up and comes to the Father. Remember, he's in a far-off distant land. I want you to think how, how long this journey of shame would have been. He's hungry. His clothes are all ripped. He was with pigs in the mire. He has nothing in his pockets, not even lint. He assuredly had thought through the entire scenario, and he knew what was waiting for him once he got back. And this is Kina. The entire point of what he's going to do, the entire enterprise of his plan, is based on the character of his father. He knew that his father was a good and gracious man, and nothing would have changed that. And he had hope in his father to treat him as well as how he used to treat his workers. Remember, this is the son who hated the father. He never appreciated the father. And I want you to realize here, he doesn't know the family state of the father because he had jeopardized the entire livelihood with his scheme. But he's humbled and broken and now will return home by faith. This is why our Christian character can never be up for sale. This is why, as Christians, we must always be like Christ. The world, especially today, the world is watching us. Make sure that everything you do, make sure everything you say, especially when you are wronged, is like Christ. Because everyone is watching you. And even when you think no one is watching you, God is always watching you. How you react to your friends, to your coworkers, and to your family members always matter. And what I want to say is make it easy for them to anticipate how you are going to react. Let them know that when this situation is presented, you're going to react this way. You're not going to, you will remain within the boundaries of grace. Let us always have a character consistent like this father in this parable. And now this younger son has come to his senses. He has realized his current situation is so bad, he has to go back. But to his surprise, his father loved him. That his father's love had not grown cold. So we saw rejection, we saw repentance, and now we're going to see reconciliation. Let me read to you verse 20. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. 
and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Jesus here in verse 20 is making a point that his father was waiting and was actively searching out for his son. And every single day that the the son was away from the father, the father missed his son. We see three things that the father does. He ran. He's not considered, he's not, he's not considering what other people might think. He's not worried what other people might, might think. He saw his son and he ran. And he embraced him. He embraced him with all of his might. And then he kissed him like only a father can kiss his son. Because what do you think an Old Testament good, faithful to Yahweh, Old Testament Satan was doing every single day that his father was gone, that his son was gone? He was praying for him. He was praying and trusting in the Lord that the Lord will bring him back. And just a quick parenthesis to the parents here. We can never save our children. That is a sovereign work of God. All we can do is teach them scripture. 21, and this is very important. We see the son's confession to the father. And he, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. This must have been sweet words to the father. My boy is saying sorry to me. And notice there's three aspects here. I have sinned against heaven. This is Yahweh. And in your sight, this is the father. And I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. This is where he hit rock bottom. You can't get any lower than that. But if you notice, one thing is missing in his confession. He had practiced it in verses 18 to 19. What's missing? The request for this young man to be made like one of the father's servants. And the text clearly makes it, the text clearly says, the father interrupts him. The father didn't want his son to go there. 28, verse 28 reads, But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, and this is as fast as you can, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. You see, the father has already made up his mind to forgive his son. Reconciliation was immediate. We see three responses from the father. The best robe, get the best robe and put it on him. Remember, he was filthy. He was of pigs. The stench of the swine must have been everywhere. And this, old, this best robe was an Old Testament ceremonial. It was reserved clothing. It was a sign of authority as well. This was the choicest robe, the most expensive robe in the father's wardrobe. And he says, give it to my younger son. And then he says, put a ring on his finger. This is a sense of restoration. This is a signet ring saying that he can do transactions on, be, on, on, uh, on, well, on behalf of the father. If you remember, they would pour wax on a contract and then they would take that signet ring and then they would, pour, they would press it in firm and deep. And this would represent both parties. And then he says, sandals on his feet. That's the third and last one. 
You see, maybe he was walking barefoot back home, his feet bloodied with painful blisters. And don't forget, not everyone wore sandals. Maybe the servant who was commanded to go get the sandals wasn't wearing sandals himself. Look at all the things the father lavishly is giving his son because he has arrived back. These gifts are a way of proving to him, son, you are now back and I have accepted you. You are my beloved son. But yet the father is still not done. Because he says in verse 23, bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. This fattened calf, this is not a a calf who liked to indulge in a little too much food. This was a special set-aside calf that they would be preparing and feeding for years and years, set for a very specific celebration. Killing such an animal was reserved for a very special occasion, and it would permit the entire village to come together and to celebrate. So this celebration was not reserved just for the family, but for everyone. Why was this celebration so important? For this son of mine, verse 24, was dead and has come back to life again. He was lost and has been found. Notice the parallel. Dead, alive, lost, and found. This wasn't figurative. This was real. In the mind of the father, his boy was dead. Because after his son hadn't returned from going out, his hope of ever seeing him would diminish. You see, we're looking through this parable for, with 2,000 years of hindsight, we're looking at this and saying, well, of course he's going to come back. This is the prodigal son. But they themselves didn't know. They had no assurance. This is the ever-reaching, sovereign, effectual grace of God. Because even while he was sinning in a Gentile country, God sought him out for his glory. This is the sovereign grace of a holy God who will seek out from heaven the sinner and draw him to himself. Because if that son would have been left to himself, he would have remained with the pigs. The prodigal son was only hoping to be one of the father's workers. But his father, his loving father, restores him to full sonship back as an heir because of his grace. But the parable, and this is why I tried to rush through all of this, because now we're going to get to a new character. And this is very intentionally done by Jesus. Because we saw rejection, we saw repentance, and we saw reconciliation. And now we're being introduced to a new character, the older brother. If you remember in verse 11, we saw that Jesus said the father had two sons. But up to now, we've never seen the older brother. You see, it would have been his obligation in the beginning of the parable for the older brother to say, whoa, wait a second. You, we, we can't separate everything. But the older son was never there. If the older son was there, it was his first and foremost role and responsibility to protect the family from such a such a devastating 
uh, separation of estate. And Jesus wants to make another point here that the second that the older older son is missing, and he's out somewhere. And he's not there to see, to see the celebration. He's not there to welcome his younger brother. He wasn't waiting for his younger brother. Verse 25 reads, Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And the, old, and the older son summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. So he wants to know what was happening. There's something missing in his equation. Maybe he thought that the father finally recognized him. Maybe he thought that this celebration, this music, or this fattened calf was for him. Finally, I get that fattened calf. He's not, he just refused to go back in. You see, something that the servant said triggered him. Something that the servant said really angered him that his father has received his younger son back and restored him as an heir. This would have been something he would have never done. He would have never showed any grace to his younger brother. Maybe he would have taken him, thrown him, locked him up, or even sold him as a slave. But that's what good old gracious dad does. To defuse the situation and to appease his older son, because don't forget, he refused to come and meet with the family, the father gets up from his seat of honor, from his celebration, to the, to the cost of dishonoring his guest and goes to see his older son. Once again, Jesus highlights the gracious father. And the idea here is that the father is pleading with his older son. He's begging him. He's trying to convince him of something that his, that his older son just refuses to see. Your little brother is back. Don't you get it? And what does his father get for this love and his grace? He gets a long list of complaints. He gets a disrespect. Verse 29 says, look, That's a shots fired. Hey, look, this is indignant and this is disrespectful. And in that context, how harsh would it have been to to a son to speak to his Jewish father in that way? Look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Do you see the anger? Do you see the hatred? Do you see the jealousy here? Jesus paints this masterfully. He is painting a picture of a hypocrite. That's what Jesus is doing. Let's look at this together. First of all, I'll say it's highly unlikely that this older son with such a rebuke never neglected one of his father's commands. And even if he did, this was his duty. This was his responsibility. And did you notice? 
he said, a goat, not a fattened calf. This is sarcasm. This is mockery. He's mocking his father. And by the way, did you notice he said prostitutes? How, how on earth could the older son know what happened to his older, to his younger brother after he went off? Maybe something happened to him on his journey. Because you have ravengers and you had people just waiting in the bushes or to attack him. He doesn't know. Maybe this is insight into what the older son wanted to do. Maybe this is insight into what his heart wants to do. You see, things are becoming clearer now. He's a hypocrite. And his, the older son's heart is no way different than his younger brother's heart before he hit rock bottom. Although the younger son stayed close to the father, his heart was off in a far off place as well. But once again, gracious father, the gracious father as he is. Look at his response. Son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. The father just passes over the rebuke. He just, he doesn't, he doesn't even answer that. Sometimes as Christians, we have to maybe not hear everything when someone is being harsh to us. Sometimes if you have a Christian hearing aid, it's okay to turn it a little lower so you don't hear everything. Because in the same way that God has shown His grace to us, we also have to show grace to those who offend us. It's okay to let, just an, in, to, to let an insult roll off. It's not an easy thing to do. Sometimes it's when you know, and I'm sure the father knew what he was getting himself into as he walked into the cold, into the darkness to go talk to his father. In those situations, it's good to have an action plan. It's good to have Christian boundaries and say, These are th- this, this is what I think might happen. And whatever happens, whatever that person says, whatever insult is hurled at me, I'm not going to break this relationship. Because I can't do that. These are Christian boundaries that we have to have set in place way before we are thrust into such a situation. Because in one sense, I will admit, it was right for the older brother to be angry. To some extent, yes, because his, old, his younger brother wasted away their wealth and, make, and made them weaker as a family. But it was more right for the older brother to rejoice since his brother returned. The brother is not angry at what the younger son did to the father, but how the father is being loving and gracious to his younger son. That the older son stayed, but his heart was off and he hates his father. And this gracious father, with his last words, is still trying to reconcile the family. He's still trying to reconcile both of his brothers because he knows one day he's going to be, he will not be here And he wants to make sure there's peace between these two brothers. 
Ultimately, Jesus wants to highlight and to expose the coldness of the son's, the older son's heart. It's dark. It's vengeful. There's hatred. There's jealousy. Only hate. He's only self-seeking. And if we take a step back and look at the context of Luke 15, Jesus here is rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees through the older brother. Jesus is rebuking the legalism and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes because the older, because they thought they were perfect. In the same way that they were close to Yahweh, as the older son was close to the father, they thought they deserved all the blessings and everyone should be sent to hell. That's the parallel. The older son deserves the father's love because he stayed, but he only went through the motions. Cornerstone, we cannot be like that. We cannot just come to Sunday morning and it's a checklist during the week. Yes, I read my Bible. Yes, I went through my prayer list. Christians don't live a checklist life. We love Christ and that's how we follow Christ. Our Lord is making a point. Only when the sinner realizes his sin and his need of forgiveness that God extends his undeserved mercy to him. And that is when there is full and complete reconciliation and restoration by God through his grace. I want to make it very clear. Luke 15 is not about family interactions. That was the application which we tried to draw out of this. This is a rebuke against legalism. And through this parable, we saw rejection, repentance, and reconciliation. And if you want to put a nice little bow around this, we can say the audacity of a rebuke of God's grace. And the text also is given to us so that we might take a moment and consider where do we fit within these three characters? Where are we in our lives today? Who do you resonate with? Are you still holding on to the filth, self-righteousness, in the same way that the scribes and the Pharisees were holding on to their traditions? Are you still trying to make it to heaven through your own works? Or are you still holding on to what your parents did or that your parents used to go to church? Or are you still running away from God like this prodigal son? In that case, let me tell you, you do not need to hit rock bottom before you turn to God. You can turn to Him right now and ask forgiveness and you will be forgiven. And if you are a Christian and you're grateful to God, don't sell your Christian character for anything because God has shown His grace to you. You also must be humble and gracious, just like this father, to those who would seek to harm you, those who would seek to insult you, those who would seek to maybe kill you. I remember 20 years ago, I visited Hollywood, and there was a young man, and he had a Jesus Saves big wooden sign and he was jumping up and down and I remember it really struck me because what what was the life of this man before he came to Christ 
Maybe he was like this prodigal son. Maybe he was. Imagine the life he lived so that when he now is saved and born again, his life is completely changed and he's so happy. But I want to end on this old Christian story. And maybe you've heard of it. It's a new believer giving his testimony one night. And he smiles and he's so happy, he's so excited. There's joy in his face and in his, on his face and, on, and in his heart. And he says that everything I am now is all through the grace of God. That I did nothing for my salvation. That I was saved only through grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, according to Scripture alone. Everything that I am is because of the grace of God. But the person in charge of the meeting, this was a legalistic man who didn't really fully comprehend God's grace. And he shrewdly says, well, you seem to indicate that God did everything. Well, what did you do in your salvation? This is when the young Christian or the Christian jumps up to his feet and says, oh, yes, I had a part to play. For 30 years, I ran after my sin. For 30 years, I ran away from God and ran deeper and deeper into all sorts of lust. And as fast as my sin could carry me, that's where I went. That was my part. But God set his grace and his gaze upon me and took out after me and ran me down. That was God's part. Cornerstone, that's God's grace. That is the God we worship. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, let us never think too highly of ourselves. Let us always rely upon your grace and your mercy for everything. We are grateful for your clear teaching that once we were all like this prodigal son, but now we have been made free in regards to your righteousness, by your righteousness, that we are untouchable in Christ and that everything is set sovereignly in motion for us to be conformed to the image of God. Lord, I commit these people to you. I commit all the parents, the moms and dads, let them be strong Christians, fearless, and let them invest every resource they have as good stewards to the upbringing, to the teaching and the admonition of their children through your word. Let them be strengthened in these difficult times. Let them be bold and let us be safe for you. We pray this in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.